Welcome to DIA Today, Democracy in America Today. I'm Matt Parks alongside Dave Corbin. Glad to have you with us to explore the ideas behind today's headlines. My lift, I seize pollution. Those dirty fuels are burning. The Earth's whole climate's churning. Clean energy solution. My ride, I scans the bill. Fossil fuels are cheap. Wind and solar too steep. Drill, baby, drill. Predefined misaligned, polarized division. Shuttered mind, worse than blind. 2020 vision. So back from Houston, Dave. Saw Patriots victory, barely, but I'm sure it was a good time. Yeah, we had a great time. The, uh, it was overall a great time for uh, New England sports fans. We had quite a few of them with us uh, down in Houston. So between the oh, Patriots yeah. coming back and, and winning that game and that uh, 14 inning, was it 14 or 13 innings that, that evening? There was That's right. a lot of sports on the TV, uh, good weather, and uh, yeah, great time. Uh, got to see my sisters from the Northwest and a lot of my good friends from around the country. Uh, so yeah, all, all good. Uh, how about yourself? How, how are things in New York? Have you seen any snow yet on the ground or? <laughs> no, actually it's kind of a, you know, still early fall kind of feel. I mean, it's 70 degrees during the day, fifties, uh, maybe touching the high forties overnight. So I, that's, that's nice sleeping weather and, and good, you know, good to be outside still. Um, so that's been fun. Uh, the, the trees are starting to turn. They're not quite there yet. Probably another week or two before we really get the the brilliant colors just north of us. So yeah, very pleasant fall so far. Yeah, I guess those um, Boston fans may be heading back to Houston right now that we've got uh, the ALCS matchup set. Uh, yeah, you were maybe, right, Maybe Dave. didn't even leave. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Stick around. Fun. Yeah, no, you, you were right. Uh, I was little faith uh, in the Red Sox who managed right. a three to one victory over the Rays. It's never happier to be wrong. So looking forward to Friday night and following, I, you know, no reason why it has to stop now. I, I don't expect the Red Sox to be the better team on paper, but you know, they weren't the better team on paper against the Rays. So <laughs> both seasons. And when does that series start? Yeah. Friday night. Friday night. Okay. So we would have, by the time people are hearing, we would have had the score for game one. So that's right. That's right. Yeah. Good. You, you'll, you'll know before we do. By Braves also won, so that's good. So the, my our our World Series prediction has, has uh, been true thus far. So yeah, you have. I, I lost the White Sox, so that's um, my preseason pick that I stuck with. Uh, they're out. Uh, so you know, Houston. It'll be interesting. Obviously, there's a lot of people that are rooting against the Astros. It's a little bit awkward as a Red Sox fan since Alex Cora is our manager and <laughs> he was the, the one of the key ringleaders of the cheating scandal there in Houston. Right. So there may be a lot of people rooting for nobody in the American league championship series, at least if it's the, the cheating lens that you're using to evaluate uh, your rooting interests. All right, well, let's turn to Aristotle. We are at some of the key chapters on regimes, Dave, uh, chapters six and seven of book three. So Aristotle begins this discussion by relaying the subject of the next two chapters whether there is only one form of government or many, and if there are many, what they are and how many, and what are the differences between each of the forms of government. You'll hear us use the word regime, which, which means forms of government uh, throughout this broadcast and probably throughout the next couple of weeks. So um, regime, form of government, 
What are they and what makes them different? This is one of the things that you've got to think about when you're asking this question is, what is the arrangement of offices in a state? Uh, who is given power in the state? Who rules is another way of uh, putting that question. And you can either have the people uh, rule supreme or the few uh, or the one. So forms of government or regimes are differentiated by how many people rule, the one, the few, or the many. And this, by the way, is, is something that when I, I teach American government, I think that you do the same thing. This tension between who should rule the one, the few, and the many is not only a, a part of ancient politics, but really is a defining principle of, of politics and forms of government throughout the ages. You could say right now that perhaps the, the challenge is that you have a, a democratic party who represents uh, the idea that the majority should rule. Uh, and a Republican Party that represents the idea that perhaps the few uh, should rule, at least that's the way that's stated by, by some, and that the challenge is, okay, well, uh, which party should win in a democratic system, the, the few or, or the many, uh, and going from there, what are the challenges of having the few rule or the many? But there's a, also another opinion out there that what really rules us today is the one, and that one is the administrative state. So. Uh, within this kind of bantering back and forth between Democrats and Republicans, you've seen continually over the last 150 years, the growth of the one in the administrative state. But Aristotle wants to take this uh, conversation to, in a different place. Uh, he wants to take this conversation in a place where he talks about the purpose of a state. Why do you have forms of government? Why do you have constitutions in the first place? Well, certainly you want to be able to secure your life. You want to be able to have the means of what he'll call mere life or for the sake of mere life. But we not only live just for the sake of mere life, we also live to flourish. We also live to uh, define what is a, a measure of our common interest, what is our measure of well-being, what's a measure of flourishing. And if that's the chief end of human life as a political animal, we have a debate as to what that flourishing means. So there's not only the question of how many people rule that goes into the form of government, but to what end do they rule? Do they rule toward the common interest or do they rule toward the self-interest of the one, the few, and the many? What do you make of this classification of, of regimes uh, from Aristotle at the beginning? Yeah, what do you make of his approach and, and his use of these two main distinctions? How many and to what end, Matt? Yeah, I think, you know, when you first hear about the idea of the one, the few, and the many, it seems maybe in our scientific age as mathematically imprecise. I mean, one obviously is precise, but then few, well, what do you mean by few? And, and then many, you know, why isn't it X percent or something of that sort? And I think what's what's helpful as we think about that, and you know, as you were describing the two parties in terms of many and few, I think maybe you were pointing this direction, is just to recognize that these aren't really just numerical categories, but they're they're groups that naturally occur. And you know, you can think about this in any in any setting. So maybe you know, in, in your church, right? You've got um, you know a pastor, right, who has kind of a, a central role as as, as one. Uh, but then you've got a group of people that are maybe elected to serve alongside the pastor, elders and deacons, let's say, uh, people that are distinguished in some way for uh, their piety, for their understanding of the faith, for uh, the qualifications that are given to us in, in the scriptures. And so 
you know, there's, there's a, a naturally occurring few, and it's not like it's a random assortment of people, right? It's certain people that are especially well-suited to, to, to govern the church uh, based upon their character, uh, knowledge, and other qualifications. And then you have the many, uh, the, the, the regular members of the congregation. And obviously a flourishing church benefits from the interaction of these groups and, and uh, the way that they all work together toward a common purpose, ultimately uh, glorifying God and, and worshiping him and serving him in their community. But, but I think if you, if you can put it in those kind of terms, right, you can see that in any, any group, we have these kind of naturally occurring ones, fews, and many's, and, and most of the time there's tensions. Right? Even, even in, a, in a church where we would hope these kind of things wouldn't be the case, uh, there can be a tension between the leaders of a church and the regular congregants. You know, you think about mundane decisions over uh, the color of the sanctuary, or do we adopt the new hymnal? Uh, I've, I've known of churches who went, which went through really tough times because of those kinds of decisions, or obviously more important theological or, or policy questions. So, you know, I think it's helpful to think about one few many as, as something beyond just a numerical classification, but really pointing to certain classes of individuals that naturally occur and, and where you are going to have tensions. Uh, and so the, the, the challenge of working out a good regime is managing those tensions and thinking about how do you make sure that the common good to get to the second dimension of, of the analysis, how do you make sure the common good is what's being advanced rather than the good of some kind of ruling class? And that natural reality of one few and many have has played itself out in, in many historical circumstance. You think, for example, of, of Roman history, where the Romans were first ruled by the Tarquin kings, and they were the one, and they were then challenged by the Roman nobles, uh, the, the few, who then became the Roman patrician class, uh, only then to be challenged themselves uh, by the Roman plebeian class, the, the many. Uh, and then the Roman plebeian class uh, begin to adore uh, some of the nobles, one noble in particular, Caesar, who becomes uh, the one. Uh, and then you have Caesars thereafter in, in Roman history. And uh, so this, this, this tension between the one, the few, and the many brings the Roman Republic into being in the first place. Uh, but also you see the transformation of Rome from a form of government uh, that is ruled by the one, the few, or the many turning from a republic to an empire. And it begs the question, is there something about imperial rule that requires uh, the amassing of power uh, by the one? So I think it's a really interesting uh, to think through Aristotle's uh, classification of the one, the few, and the many and apply it uh, to history. And I think one of the other interesting things, right, and we, we know this from reading of the American founding fathers that they did a lot of reading of Greek and Roman history, and they knew very well of the, the tensions between the one, the few, and the many. Uh, they certainly didn't want to establish uh, a Caesar uh, on the North American continent. They didn't want to have a government that is the rule of the one. And, and you have in the person of Washington, right, this individual who is very, very keen on making sure that he doesn't rule like a Caesar or appear to be a Caesar. Uh, his office in the one of the presidency needs a certain amount of respect and nobility, but he's always reminding others that he, he wants to rule uh, as he would like uh, to be ruled. Uh, likewise, you see in the formation of American government itself, 
uh, something left aside by the few uh, in the judiciary uh, and in the, the Senate, right, the higher part of the legislative branch, and then some deference paid uh, to the many. So the, the founders were uh, were very uh, clear-sighted on this, this question of this tension between these natural bodies of the one, the few, and the many. And in the American form of government itself, I think you have a an attempt at kind of a um, not doing away with those tensions, but in Madison's language, realizing that the ambition of the one, the few, and the many must counteract the ambition uh, of the other. Yeah, and part of the story here is that you know the one, the few, and the many each have a reasonable claim to govern. So you think about the classic one, you know, somebody of military prowess and the ability to command. I mean, George Washington. You look at George Washington, you say, "Wow, yeah, he has a claim to command." He has a claim to, to govern. And yet you say, yeah, but it's not an absolute claim, is it? Because the, the wise who can gather and, and deliberate on things, surely we want the benefit of their analysis. Uh, we don't want just one person exercising strict judgment on things. We want we want to benefit from this, this group. Think about the Constitutional Convention as this kind of aristocratic body that comes together to deliberate on fundamental matters of the regime. And then likewise, you'd say, well, yeah, but the many, the many, they supply the taxes, they supply the soldiers, they, they have a claim to rule as well. So we have these groups, and they each have not a perfect claim to govern, but a plausible claim to govern. And so that too creates the tension, because each one of them can plausibly look at a, at a regime where they're excluded, or where they're not given much authority and say, that's not just, and, and demand more recognition for their group in that regime. Right. And Aristotle, as he moves forward here, he's going to say, okay, they each have perhaps a claim to rule, but then we have to judge whether they rule correctly when they're given the authority to rule. And the distinction here is, do you rule with your own interest in mind? And he gives the example of a master ruling over a slave who somewhat of what the master does in the household will be beneficial to the slave, but at the end of the day, the master rules over the slave for the primary benefit of, of the master, uh, as opposed to a, a statesmanlike rule where uh, that you have um, a master and you have a family, you have a uh, you have a set of parents and you have children. Where at the end of the day, the rule is not primarily for the sake of the parents; the rule is for the good of the family itself. So this distinction: to what end do you rule? is central to the claim that the one, the few, and the many should be ruling. And, and he's an equal opportunity critic here. He'll say that the one uh, can very easily be corrupted. Uh, that good king uh, can be a tyrant when the one rules for his own interest. The few, likewise, they can rule either in a wise way where they have a wise assessment, uh, a refined assessment of what the public good is, or they can rule in a way that benefits uh, themselves, uh, whether monetarily or otherwise. And then finally, and this is the most interesting thing for us, going back to your conversation about the majority uh, and the, the multitude, we, we tend to think that today in, in contemporary politics that you know majorities should rule. But Jefferson reminds us, right, that a majority is only right when a majority is thinking about something in a reasonable fashion. And Aristotle will say that oftentimes majorities can rule in a way that benefit uh, the majority at the expense of the minority. So he points out this great distinction between a constitutional government where the many are allowed to rule uh, and its corrupt version where the many simply use the power of their numbers to overwhelm everyone else. Yeah, I mean, the, the claim that the many has to govern is predicated on the fact 
that the many is governing on behalf of all, not the interest of the many. Right? So if you think about the first premise of majority rule being all men are created equal, and then you follow that up as that's elaborated in the Declaration of Independence with well, equal in what sense, equal as, as carriers of natural rights given to them by God, then it's a precondition of majority rule that you recognize the equal rights of even those that aren't in the majority. And so that's you know the point that Jefferson's making in his first inaugural address when he says the majority uh, to be reasonable must act on behalf of all. Yeah, and I think we see this play out in, in just the way that men seek office and want to retain or maintain their offices today. If, if you're in a regime where the, the many are ruling and they're ruling in a reasonable fashion, you might hold office for a time and, and be part of that administration, but you feel confident you know, setting aside your office holding because you know that the individual who's going to replace you uh, is going to rule in a just manner as well. But, but we see many people today, Matt, who just want to stay in office because the office serves their own individual purpose. So there's a, a really good um, takeaway here or modern application when you come to the question of term limits. Ought, ought we to have term limits for uh, our legislators or any of our uh, office holders? Or ought we to allow our office holders to kind of remain in office for as long as they can and, and do well by themselves uh, while appearing to do well uh, by the common good? Yeah, I've always thought it was a, somewhat of a close call on this point because, you know, the the case that, for example, Hamilton makes against term limits in the Federalist, at least for the president, I think is a strong one. And we've seen historically that second terms have been almost uniformly bad and, and often scandal ridden. And so if you're trying to avoid scandal, you're trying to avoid self-dealing, is it really wise to say to a president and in the administration surrounding that president, only two terms? And so once you've been elected that second term, now you're out no matter how well you do, uh, no matter how well you serve the common good, you can't get a third term. And so Hamilton projects that that's going to create a disincentive for good behavior. And so I wonder if we can see that from the historical record, really over the course of American history, because even before you had a constitutional requirement limiting the two terms, you had the tradition established by Washington, uh, broken obviously by FDR as, as the only individual who really legitimately aim for that third term. So, so I think on that side, it's questionable whether it would be wise to uh, continue to have that, that two-term limit. But on the other hand, legislators right, who, who have no term limits are the ones that seem to most benefit from some rotation in office. So you know, Charles Grassley recently announced he's running for an eighth term as senator from Iowa. Uh, he's 88 years old, and so he'd be 95 when that term ends. And you just wonder, is it really essential that, that Charles Grassley be there in Iowa representing that state in, indefinitely and, until he dies, apparently? And, and you think about just the, the general pattern that Aristotle tries to set up here of, of ruling and being ruled in turn. And I think back to uh, William Penn's original constitution for Pennsylvania, which set up a system kind of like our Senate, where you had a three-year term if you were in the council and every year, a third of those council members will rotate off, just like every two years, a third of the U.S. Senate, you know, their term comes up. But under his constitution, you couldn't run for re-election then. You had to wait a year before you sought office again. And he said that was because they want all to be fitted for office and have the experience of the care and burden of it. And I think that's an interesting analysis there, a very Aristotelian analysis, the care of office – 
and the burden of office and being fit for it. Uh, that, that having rotation would benefit the broader public if more people had more engagement in office. Yeah, and this kind of transitions nicely to uh, part seven uh, of book three of Aristotle's politics. We've already mentioned the, the six regime types, but it's the way that Aristotle classifies those six regime types that I think is, is essential. He'll call three of them true or, or honest or, or right, and three of them corrupt. And it's based on just this very distinction uh, of whether or not you kind of recognize uh, the burden of rule, but you want to be fair and just and exact um, in, in your administration. And this is really an important distinction because when I teach this, uh, in, when I teach Aristotle here in relation to some more of the modern thinkers from Machiavelli onward, there's a really uh, great difference between how Machiavelli, Hobbes, and Locke understand the question of the one, the few, and the many, and how Aristotle presents it here in the politics. And that's probably clearest in, in Machiavelli. Machiavelli is going to say that really everyone rules for their own good, right? That justice is the advantage of the stronger, that, that there really is no common good per se or any common interest. And he'll use the example of Roman history to make this point. So you can't really blame the one for wanting to be tyrant-like or the few for wanting to be hyper-oligarchic or the many from wanting to be uh, hyper-democratic. That's just the very nature of the one, the few, and the many to serve their own purposes. But the danger there, Matt, is that if, if your vision of politics is one in which the one, the few, and the many are not capable of just, exact, transparent rule for the common interest, then you've wiped away three of the six options for regimes. What do you make of that, Matt? Yeah, I think it's one of the things I really admire in the Federalists is that while they have this tragic view of human nature... They never compromise and say, and therefore just throw our hands up and, you know, we, we know it's going to be bad. So let's just make peace with that. Uh, we'll just assume everybody's going to do bad things. They're going to seek their own interest. And talking about anything other than that is, is, is not worth our time. But they always say it may be the case that leaders will pursue their own personal interest, but they ought not to do that. And they ought to be held accountable when they do that by the people. They ought to be directed towards something better than that. You know, I think about comparing the Federalist on this to somebody like Hobbes. When he talks about tyranny, he says, tyranny is just monarchy misliked, right? So it's just a matter of relative perception. Well, you call it tyranny, I call it monarchy. You call it aristocracy, I call it oligarchy, right? If you're in, you call it the good name. If you're out, you call it the bad name. It's just a political game we play. And there's so much of that in our politics. Right, where, where the, the labels shift based on who has power and, and, the, and the critique is, is entirely relativized. But what Aristotle is trying to do is to get us back to some objective standard. Right? There, there actually is a common good. And there's policies that tend toward that common good. Now, we recognize that there's no regime that's going to pursue the common good perfectly all the time. Right, We're, we're not living in Christ's millennial kingdom. But we can still tell the general orientation of a regime. We can still talk about, is it directed toward the common good? And understand that to be a real thing, right? There is a good that actually could be common, right? Where, where there would be a tendency toward flourishing, where all individuals, whether in power or out of power, have some benefit, right? And then there's things that don't do that, right? That are objectively, we can say that simply is not good. It's not good for, for the community 
as a whole. And so I think it's really benefit uh, of studying Aristotle, right? That we have this moral framework that the American founders, to their credit, in an, in, a, in an era and age where those kind of moral judgments were being pushed to the side or relativized, held on to that. And I think it's important for us, as we think about contemporary politics, to hold on to that as well and not be so, so cynical that it's just about ins versus outs and that we lose sight of the possibility of a politics guided by a true judgments concerning the good. Yeah, and I was going to say just that, that you often hear today these, these kind of two major claims made, and they're just kind of bandied about as if they're true, and they're never questioned. So one of them is just, you know, all politicians are bad, right? All politicians are corrupt. And, you know, what does that claim that everything is, is corrupt uh, state? It states, well, you can't have that better. You can't make things better. You can't improve from a politics that is self-interested to a politics that is based upon common interest or common good. And I think that the second you know, claim that's made there is that, of course, the powerful are going to rule. And, and we see this in our politics today that you know, before all of this class of people ruled and now they have to be overwhelmed, overcome and a new, new group of people uh, has to rule and, and that'll produce justice. Uh, but simply, I say this often, if, if there's been a totem pole in the past, turning it upside down and making those who were the have-nots the haves and vice versa does not produce the justice that you want. It produces revenge, perhaps, but not justice, not, not a common good. So we do well, and I think Aristotle is going to build upon these points of how do you make things better and what are the challenges in making things better? It really kind of frames the whole rest of his study. But we would do well um, as contemporary Americans uh, to think about politics in this way. We'll never be able, as you said, to create something perfect, but let's not make the perfect the enemy of the good. Let's make the better its friend. That's great. Yeah, and we'll continue this conversation on regimes next time as we look at chapters eight through 10 of book three and some more nuance. Aristotle, the philosopher, as well as the political analyst emerges in those chapters. We'll look forward to that conversation next week. Uh, we're going to wrap up the show by opening the grade book. So this last weekend, we had for the first time, all five of the first round rookie quarterbacks start for their team. All right. So the last to start was Trey Lance for the San Francisco 49ers, uh, Zach Wilson, Trevor Lawrence, and Mac Jones have been starting all season. And then Justin Fields also has been starting the last several weeks for the Chicago bears. So, it's obviously too soon to give any kind of final judgment on these players or on the choice that each team made in, in selecting them, but we can still grade them at this stage. So we're going to go in draft order, beginning with Trevor Lawrence, number one overall pick, obviously, of the Jacksonville Jaguars, and, and give a grade so far for Lawrence's performance to date. Uh, so Jaguars 0-5, um, not great on that front. Uh, Lawrence's stats, you can look at them different dimensions, but uh, his overall quarterback rating, the one that ESPN uses called the QBR, he's ranked 30th of, of 32 qualifying quarterbacks. So it hasn't been an incredible start for Lawrence, but what, what grade would you give him? Well, he's not in an uh, amazingly uh, opportune situation there with yeah. the team um, really having very little talent. Uh, the uh, coach, of course, has had a, a difficult time. Uh, he's been criticized left and right, and a lot of it brought on himself. Um, 
but it's just not a good situation right now. And I think one of the things you see as a young quarterback is you really kind of need to have that coach and that, that system in place, and you're going to have your bumps and bruises. Uh, but at the end of the day, you know, your, your coach is going to bring you through or help you bring it through your coaching staff. So I think that, you know, given that, um, you know, Lawrence hasn't performed that well, but it hasn't been awful. I'd probably give him a C plus Matt, a lot of turmoil, bad line play, but still he's a talented person where you get the right coaching staff in there and they grow a little bit. I think he's still going to be really good. Yeah. I think no reason to conclude that it's not going to work out or that, you know, he's going to be a major bust. I'd give him a C. All right. Well, then one pick behind Lawrence was Zach Wilson, New York Jets, who are one in four. Um, his QBR rating is a bit below Lawrence's. He's 31st of 32 quarterbacks so far. Uh, what do you make of Zach Wilson so far, Dave? I only saw him play once, and I think his first two passes were intercepted, and I think he's had <laughs> he's been prone to those interceptions. Uh, I think he lacks a little bit of discipline right now. Uh, I, some people say he trusts his arm too much. But I, you can't lose your team a game, right? This, this great expression that we've heard over and over. You can't win a game until you stop losing the game for yourself. And, and Wilson's had one good game, but I think a lot of the other games, he's really helped lose the game for the Jets. So I think he's got talent, but I, I think that he's um, on the wrong side of a C. I'd probably give him a, a C minus there. I agree with you, C minus. I think you know, the first three weeks, they weren't scoring points at all. Just horrific offense. Uh, the last two weeks have been some signs of life on that front. So I think, you know, we'll see how it, how it goes from here. But if, if he can score 25 points a week, 20, 25 points a week, then that's, that's decent. Um, and you're obviously not too much getting in the way of, of, of the talent that you do have there uh, emerging and, and, and being successful. So uh, I, think, I think there's reason for some measure of optimism, but not enough to get him out of the C range just yet. All right, third draft pick was Trey Lance, San Francisco 49ers. Now, think about team situations. His situation is probably better than either Wilson or Lawrence, um, given the track record of the 49ers. Injuries have been a problem for them, but there's a lot of more talent on the roster, probably. Lisa made his first start last week, lost that start, but you know he's appeared in a couple other games as well. Numbers are pretty good so far. Uh, his QBR, you know, isn't enough appearances to be calculated officially, but he would rank around 27th if he were uh, had, had those appearances. So what would you grade him so far, Dave? Yeah, I have to give him an incomplete. I mean, I, like you said, he's, he's, he's played in a couple of games. He was um, you know, going back and forth with, with Jimmy G at the beginning. I, you know, I, I think he's got a lot of potential. I think he's got that Josh Allen, Brett Favre in him. So he can, he can run, he can throw it, I don't know, 90 yards. He's got a crazy arm. Uh, but right now, uh, I don't think I've seen enough to be able to give him a grade. Yeah, it looks like Jimmy G is coming back soon. And so we may not see much more Trey Lance at least starting the rest of the year if, if Garoppolo can stay healthy. I agree. I think incomplete's fair grade at this point. But you know, what we've seen, I think, is promising. So, um, you know, so far, I don't think we, we, we know that we have any busts just yet. All right, now we got to go down to the 11th pick, Justin Fields, 11th pick of Chicago Bears. Uh, started the last three games. He's 2-1 and one of those three starts. Uh, but his QBR is the worst. He's 32 of 32. So the stats have not been good, but the results on the scoreboard have been better. What do you make of his start so far? Well, he has a winning record. So, I mean, that's at least to see. Um, I, I think that uh, like others, he's, 
he's kind of um, he has up and ups and downs, but I mean, the fact that he's only had two interceptions, that's a good thing. And, and he's been able to run the ball uh, and, you know, a little bit like Cam Newton last year for the Patriots, you know, you can win games with that type of quarterback, but at the end of the day, you know, is that going to get you into the playoffs or far into them? And, and I doubt that's the case for him this year one. So I'll give him a C. Okay. Yeah. I, I only have a C minus um, the quarterback play has been pretty bad just as a, as a pure passer and, that side of the job, I feel very sorry for poor Allen Robinson. I don't you just can't get a break. You know, he goes from one bad quarterback to the next. This last year in Chicago, I hope, I hope we can get onto a team, maybe the Patriots, who could use a, a wide receiver one. But uh, at this point, you know, Fields certainly has the running ability, but whether he's able to layer on enough in the passing game to really lead the Bears to long-term success, I think is questionable, at least for this season. All right, lastly, the guy you just saw live and in person, Mac Jones. Patriots, of course, are two and three. Uh, Jones has completed about 70% of his passes and has the highest QBR on the list here, ranking 23rd of 32. So he's actually ahead of non-rookie quarterbacks, uh, at least a few. How would you grade his performance so far, Dave? Yeah, I mean, just from being there at the game and, and kind of seeing how he acts as the pocket collapses around him and he just hangs in there and throws it in. And most of the time with that crowd around him throws it on the spot. I mean, he's had about 10 or 15 drops this year. So he, that, that 70% completion rate ought to be about 75%, which would have, I think, bumped him up a couple slots. Uh, I think that they definitely need to kind of change their route pattern there. There are a lot of just you know, dinks and dunks along the way. I just like to see one person, a speedster, some a number one receiver, Allen Robinson, someone like that, just go down the field and and extend it a little bit. But I mean, right now it's hard to complain. I think they could be four four and one, so a solid B. Uh, no complaints of, about that draft pick. Yeah, I think you know for a number fifteen pick in the first round, it all looks very promising. I agree with the B. Average yards per completion is is very low, so you know they're they're going to have to take the training wheels off at some point, and maybe they're going to have to have some new personnel in order to do that. Invested a lot in tight ends, obviously. You've got some, what are probably really second and third receivers that are acting as first and second receivers. So if they can ever get them a wide receiver one, like a Robinson or somebody of that sort, I think there's real promise there. And I think Patriots fans should be encouraged. It's, it may not be any better this year than last, seven and nine or something like that may be the final number. But, but I think... As you look into the future, there is reason for optimism. All right. Well, that's going to wrap it up for this week's show. Thank you, as always, for listening. Please remember to subscribe and review the show on your favorite podcast platform. You can reach us at democracyinamericatoday at gmail.com. And we look forward to talking to you again next week. 2020 vision.